Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast for Monday, January 17th, 2022. I double check that real quick. Kevin McDonald, your host here and executive producer at New Mexico PBS. We hope you had a good weekend, maybe enjoying a bit of a longer weekend with the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. We are again gearing up tomorrow for the State of the State Address to kick off the 2022 legislative session. Be a little different again this year because of COVID concerns. The governor will give the speech live from her office instead of the house floor but we will be providing that and we encourage you to follow the live stream at newmexicopbs.org or on our facebook youtube pages you can find it any of those places and you can also catch the speech in its entirety with some post analysis from a group special line opinion panel that will air the following day wednesday the 19th at 4 p.m again that's on air on channel 5 Uh, that you can get that and COVID is where we start things in this episode as we got an update last week on the impact as cases continue spike largely fed by the Omicron variant here in New Mexico having a big impact again on hospitals and especially emergency rooms we heard from hospital officials at UNMH and Presbyterian as well as some uh, questions from reporters across the state about the ongoing challenges that uh, COVID is creating for hospitals. We want to kick things off here with that update and then we'll come back around with some thoughts from this week's line opinion panel on Omicron and the spread of COVID during this current spike. But here now, update from hospital officials on Omicron in New Mexico. Good morning, everybody. Thank you, Mark. Um, so hi, everyone. I'm Steve McLaughlin. I'm, I'm an emergency physician and I'm chair of the department uh, at UNM. Uh, really grateful for this opportunity to be able to talk to you this morning and talk about what we think may be coming up over the next month or two. Um, I think, as everybody knows, we're in a situation where the entire country and world is facing the worst healthcare crisis we've seen in 100 years. In New Mexico, we're seeing the you know, rapid increase of the Omicron variant of COVID. And on top of our already full hospitals, taking care of all the normal patients that we take care of, we're in a situation where um, we're pretty overwhelmed with um, sick patients. And in the next couple of weeks, we expect that this is going to get worse. The situation in the emergency departments um, is pretty um, concerning at the moment. Um, we are obviously in a place where we have to take care of our sickest patients first. And we have a lot of um, patients that are boarding in the emergency department who are you know, waiting for hospital beds, but since the hospitals are full, those patients will back up and they're waiting in the emergency department. The um, impact of this on patients coming to the emergency department is that if you come in with a minor complaint or a moderate complaint, you are experiencing extended wait times. Um, And the second thing is that because the hospitals are so full and the emergency departments are so full, that care in the emergency department um, may be taking place in an alternative space, such as a hallway, a waiting room, or in a chair. I think the the main message that I want to get out to folks um, during this, these, these sort of opening comments are that if you are very sick, we are here for you and we want you to come in. Um, If your illness is mild, we really encourage you to seek care through your primary care physician, a virtual visit, or some other alternative and not come to the emergency department. Um, I think the second important message is due to the really high volumes of sick patients that in the emergency department, we are not able to do COVID testing on patients who don't have symptoms or who have very mild symptoms. Um, We're really asking those people to seek care in other places. Um, So really the summary is it's very crowded in the emergency department. If you come in with a minor to moderate complaint, um, please expect to wait and that your care may be in an alternative location. And that if if you can, if you have a mild illness, seek care in another location. Um, However, if you are very sick, we're here for you and we want you to come in. So 
Um, that those are really my opening comments, Mark. And when we get to the the next section, I am happy to answer um, any questions that folks have. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. McLaughlin. Next, we'll go to Presbyterian Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Jason Mitchell. Thank you very much, and, and uh, Dr. McLaughlin, thanks for the for the intro and overview. Um, you know, we really are uh, in a public health crisis, and we are asking for the public's health, um, right? Uh, for, for the public's help, um, right now in our hospitals, uh, we have about 203 uh, patients admitted across the state for COVID into our hospitals. That's about close to 30% of our beds are uh, patients with COVID. Uh, and we continue to see the vast majority of those individuals being unvaccinated, um, even with Omicron. It's, it's the unvaccinated that get sick and end up in the hospital. About 86% of, uh, of those individuals uh, that are admitted are unvaccinated. Um, similar to UNM, our hospitals are um, much fuller than they have ever been in the, in the past, and our EDs have prolonged wait times. Um, so what we need from the community are a couple really key things. Um, we need your help going to the right place for the right level of care. Um, and if you are truly very sick and having difficulty breathing, having chest pain, please come to our emergency rooms. Uh, we wanna care for you. Um, but if you're having mild symptoms, uh, then there's a lot of other places to consider. Um, we have a site called uh, Get Care Today, Presbyterian Get Care Today. And it gives you all the different ways from uh, talking to a nurse um, on a phone to um, getting a virtual visit to being seen uh, in a visit in our urgent care. But please use those other ways to figure out um, a best way to get seen where you don't have to wait. If you come to our emergency rooms um, and don't have a severe illness, uh, you're gonna wait a long time and we hate that. Um, we don't want anyone to wait and be uncomfortable in our emergency rooms, um, but it's, it's where we are right now with as many sick people as we have across the state. So um, again, I, I urge each individual, um, if you have not been boosted and it's due, please get boosted. Um, it makes a big difference uh, as to whether you get a COVID and also makes a big difference of whether if you get it, um, how sick you get. And if you're boosted, you really are in a much better position not to have to go to the hospital, or you can go to the doctor. Um, if you haven't been vaccinated and you're on the fence, it's time to get vaccinated. Um, it's been given across the world. You know, we've got billions of doses out there. Uh, we know it's safe uh, and it's time to get vaccinated. Um, and again, if you need help, um, don't delay your care. Um, if you need help for any medical reason, please come see us. And so with that, I'll, I'll close and, and hand it back to you. Thank you, Dr. Mitchell. We'll go ahead and open it up for questions. And we do have to be done by 9.30. So we are asking for uh, just one question and a follow-up and just to make sure we get everybody in. So if you have a question, let me know in the chat and I'll call on you. Let's start with Colton Schoen from KOB. <laughs> Sorry about that. I was typing with one hand there. Um, the question is, how long are the wait times for people who are going to the ER and do have those mild or moderate symptoms and they show up anyway? Um, are we talking several hours? Um, what's kind of been the process for the length? I think, um, Colton, for patients at UNM, it really depends on the time that you present. Um, the wait times in the uh, afternoons and evenings tend to be, you know, several hours, um, and uh, especially bad on Mondays and Tuesdays. So it's a little bit hard to give a specific number, um, but I would say, you know, expect six hours um, wouldn't be unreasonable on a on a busy evening or uh, afternoon. So it does depend on exactly why you're there and what the situation is. But um, the wait times are very long, and as Dr. Mitchell said. Um, we feel terrible about that, right? It's, we don't want anybody to have to wait. Um, it is just a symptom of this in terrible crisis that we are in um, at this point. Thanks for the question. Thanks, uh, and Dr. Mitchell, do you wanna to add to that? Yeah, you know, uh, the University of New Mexico and Presbyterian, um, we serve the community uh, just the same. And so when our wait times go up, they go up together. Um, because patients are coming to both of us from all over the state. Um, and so there's not, uh, there's not a big difference between our wait times at any given point in time. Um, we, you know, we both operate at uh, well over 110, 120. UNM goes up to 130 to 150% capacity. Um, and so uh, as our hospitals fill, there's not room for new patients that aren't severely ill to come into the ED and so that backs up wait times as well. So um, we do it together. Um, we serve the state together and our wait times uh, go up together, which is why we really need people to only come if you need to be in there. 
Um, I think uh, Dr. McLaughlin mentioned earlier, if you need a COVID test, the ED is not a place to do it if you're otherwise well. Um, there's a lot of places in the community to get COVID tests. Um, you can go to, the, to uh, the Department of Health to look for places to get tests. You can also directly to the pharmacies and through the websites you can register for the tests. So there's a lot of options. Um, so you may have to search around a little bit and I've helped patients do that, um, but that's the best way to get a COVID test. Awesome, thank you both. Thank you, Colton. Next, we'll go to Ryan Botel of the Albuquerque Journal. After Ryan is Patrick Lohman from Source New Mexico. Go ahead, Ryan. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, doctors, for taking our questions today. Um, I was wondering if you could each give us an update on the crisis standards of care that the hospitals have enacted. Are those, is that declaration still in place? And what sort of um, like techniques and changes are being done uh, because of, of that declaration? Thank you. So I, I can I can start. Um, so yes, the crisis standards of care are still in effect for our um, Albuquerque hospitals. Um, so that's Rest Medical Center, Press Hospital, and Caseman. Um, we continue to have volumes that are well above our license capacity. Um, and the way we account for this are we um, see patients in non-traditional places. Um, so where we may have had a room in the ED, we may be using a stretcher in the hall and a curtain around it. Um, so uh, things like that. Um, we've got a um, triage tent uh, at Press Hospital outside. And so patients that have COVID and COVID symptoms, we're able to put them in there and care for them as well. Um, but it is, it's a matter of taking care of spaces you don't normally use. Um, we have an immense number of staff in. We continue to have between four and 500 agency nurses and other staff in at any given point in time from around the state. Um, and then we also continue to look at where, where can we help transport people? So if someone comes to us and there's no beds, um, we want to make sure they get a bed, and that may mean having people go out of state and us finding places and beds out of state. And so we continue to pull every single lever we can. Um, probably the hardest lever we keep pulling is we work hard. Um, our clinicians, our staff, our environmental services, our registrars, they all work really, really hard. Um, and unfortunately, this has not been a couple month thing. We're now uh, in a couple years. And so we've got uh, a lot of folks uh, that have dedicated their lives to taking care of the community. Um, and so crisis standards of care is, is about doing more and more with less. Um, and that's where we are today. Thanks, Dr. Mitchell. I, I would just add that it really is um, a situation where for each patient that needs care, you have to think very carefully about how you can provide that given the situation that we're in, which is limited resources, um, staff that are working incredibly hard and a system that's very overloaded. And so we've um, added some additional decision makers to help make sure that we're getting patients into the right locations, um, to the right hospitals, whether they're coming from the metro or from outside. And I think that something that we can all be very proud of here in New Mexico are is the way that we've coordinated that care. And I, I think Dr. Mitchell alluded to this in a couple of his answers that we work very closely together with the other partners in the healthcare system to coordinate what we're doing to make sure that patients don't fall through the gaps, um, to make sure that um, if one system has a good idea that the other system can use that as well. So it's, it's very much a collaborative approach. I think we all really recognize that we're in this together and that if we work together like this, we can do the best job that we can for the patients that need us. So I think that's one of the things that during this time when we're in crisis standards of care that has been um, a really positive aspect is the amount of teamwork and collaboration that's been going on across the systems. Thank you, Ryan. Next, we'll go to Patrick Lohman of Source New Mexico after Patrick is KRQE. Go ahead, Patrick. Hi, uh, thank you, doctors and Mark for your time. Um, this is a question for Dr. Mitchell or Ms. and or Mr. Dr. McLaughlin, if it's applicable, but um, I saw that the Presbyterian crisis of standard uh, um, mentions how uh, patients who are transferred could be transferred out of network, um, and that if that's the case, uh, that that might um, that the hospital will work with an insurance company. I was just wondering um, how many patients might have been transferred out of state at this point, how many might have been transferred out of network, and um, if it ever occurs that the costs are then borne by the patient because they're transferred out of state and out of network. Thank you, Patrick. That's a that's a really good question. No, when patients are transferred out, the costs are not borne by the patients. 
Um, and the thing is, you know, our goal is to get the patients to where they're going to get care. And if we're full, we need to get them someplace where they can get care. Uh, and that's what we do. Um, and we do whatever it takes to do that. I'm sorry, I do not have the exact numbers of those that have left the state versus those that have come in. Um, we do track those as a state. I know the Department of Health tracks it as well, um, kind of the influx and outflux of patients, but I don't have our exact numbers uh, at this time. Okay, thanks. Dr. McLaughlin, do you have anything to add to that by chance? In general, I would say that the goal is to get a every single patient into the bed that they need. And so everyone is being as creative as possible about trying to find that right location, um, whether that's in our hospital, in a partner hospital, um, in one of our network hospitals. Um, and it's really trying to get that patient the care they need during a time when the system is very overloaded. So. Um, th that would be, I think, the general approach that we have. And again, the way we're doing that is a lot of communication and a lot of coordination um, across the different delivery platforms to make sure that we can find the right spot for that patient. Thank you. Thanks, Patrick. Next, we'll go to KRQE. After KRQE will be Matt Hollinshead of the Rear Rancher Observer. Uh, go ahead, KRQE. Okay, thank you. Um, just a quick question. A recent New York Times article, just for background, had had an epidemiologist talking about how um, it's hard to distinguish people who are hospitalized because of COVID and who happens to test positive, but you know may have gone to the hospital for something else, and but gets lumped in with those COVID nineteen hospitalizations, and how that these quote unquote incidental patients may be more prevalent because this new variant. Um, is more transmissible. Um, that's just the background. And I, I guess I'm just asking, are you seeing that in your hospitals? And if so, do you have a gauge on how many of these patients who may be, who may have tested positive, but in the hospital for something else, um, how many of them, I guess, make up your COVID hospitalizations? I know that was wordy. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. Um, Generally, in the numbers that we present, those are patients that are hospitalized with COVID for COVID, uh, not incidental. Um, and so it really is the number that you're seeing. Uh, that's the number that we have hospitalized for COVID. Um, yes, with, with as much COVID as there is in community, um, it, it is spread like wildfire. And so there's going to be patients that come in for uh, appendicitis, patients come in for pregnancy and delivery of a baby um, who could be positive of COVID and not even know it. We screen 100% of patients that come into our hospital to make sure um, if they're COVID positive, we use all the appropriate precautions. Um, as for the exact numbers, uh, we do track that. I'm sorry, I don't have the exact numbers um, offhand right now, though. Sorry, just to follow up, but you do track who is in the hospital for something else and has tested positive versus who is hospitalized because of COVID-19. We track all of our COVID, COVID patients and then understand their admission diagnosis as well as uh, whether that was, you know, secondary to respiratory failure or some other reason. Yes, we track all of that. Uh, the other thing we do is we screen 100% of our um, patients coming in for any kind of surgery as well uh, to make sure that, uh, that they don't have COVID. And if they do and still need emergency surgery, we can absolutely do it. There's just additional precautions we take. It's a great question. I would uh, agree with Dr. Mitchell on, on the um, points about how we're accounting for those patients. I would say that um, it is when you're working a shift in the emergency department, it, it is one of the most clear indicators of how rapidly this current variant is spreading when patients that you are testing on admission because they have a broken leg or they have an appendicitis, when those patients start to show positive for COVID, which they are, and they have been for the last couple of weeks, um, that is a real indicator that um, it is spreading dramatically in the community. Um, and and we, we have definitely been seeing that. Thank you. Thanks, Annalisa. Next, we'll go to uh, Matt Hollinson of the Rear Rancher Observer. Hi, Dr. McLaughlin. Hi, Dr. Mitchell. I, both, I appreciate both of you uh, taking the time to uh, chat with us about this. Uh, I guess I noticed um, uh, in recent weeks about it, it looks, seems like uh, U.S. officials are uh, monitoring uh, data coming out of uh, South Africa that, you know, after seeing the steep, steep rise in Omicron-related cases, you know, the last two, three weeks, I mean, they, there seems to be this, this uh, equally steep drop in cases in across South Africa, and there, that seems to be giving, uh, projecting reasons uh, 
for uh, optimism. I guess when it comes to that, are, are you monitoring, you know, that kind of thing, what's happening in South Africa and like trying to see, okay, might it, the U.S. And, and New Mexico follow suit or is that maybe too early to predict as of now or? I'm happy to take a, um, to answer that question for you, Matt. I think we hope that's what happens. The, the challenge is that um, the demographics and the COVID experience in other communities not, is not the same as our community um, here in New Mexico or in the United States. And so it's very hard to say, to predict that that is what's gonna happen. Um, so I think there is some hopeful optimism that we may see case numbers drop quickly, um, but we're just not sure. And we're gonna have to follow that and see what happens. Um, we are still in a situation in New Mexico right now where case numbers are going up dramatically. So we're still, we're, we're not to the going down cases yet. We're still on the going up cases. Um, the other thing I would add is that what we don't know exactly is how closely will hospitalizations, ICU admissions, and unfortunately deaths follow those high case numbers. The most recent data coming out of New York indicates preliminarily that um, ICU admissions, for example, aren't going quite as high as cases, but it's still early and we know that those that those numbers take time um, and it may be several weeks um, until we have a real sense about what the burden on the ICUs may be. Um, but I think that that's when, you, when you're reading a, a lot of the uh, coverage about Omicron, the, the, the hope is that although we may have a high number of patients that, that are testing positive, that the actual number of patients requiring ICU admission, for example, won't be quite as high. And um, we just don't know yet what that's actually going to look like. Yeah, I would agree with that. The, uh, what we do know is the Omicron virus is exceptionally contagious. I mean, exceptionally contagious. And it burns through a community, um, through every, almost every susceptible person who's exposed. Um, susceptible, obviously the most susceptible are people who have not been vaccinated. Um, and so unfortunately what it does is it spreads like wildfire to anyone that's getting exposed to it that has no, uh, no immunity to it. It also spreads to people that have some immunity to it. We know that if you've had the vaccine but not had your booster, um, you're less likely to hospitalize for sure, but you still could get sick and spread it to other people. Um, and so really the, the only way we can stop this right now is for people to uh, get their boosters, to get vaccinated, um, and then also to really avoid situations where you could catch COVID and spread COVID. Um, because it, it's very clear across the world that any individual that's being exposed to COVID um, and doesn't have immunity to COVID is going to catch it very quickly and spread it very quickly. Um, and so, so sadly that, that steep up, you gotta look at the numbers of people that got infected. Um, the other thing is you look at uh, some of the other countries around the world, uh, many of those had a lot of deaths um, a lot of illness in advance. And so much of their susceptible population had already had COVID and already suffered terrible consequences from Delta. Um, in the United States, we've suffered terrible consequences, but we still have a large reservoir of people that are unvaccinated, unprotected, um, and could get very sick. So uh, it will burn through the community. Um, you're protected if you are vaccinated and boosted. You're protected if you wear your N95 masks and you um, you practice COVID safe behaviors, uh, but probably the most important thing is just vaccination. And a follow-up, if I may, uh, uh, for both of you, uh, I guess, do you see any data at this point, um, you know, can, considering the higher, uh, I guess, vaccination numbers and um, see, it looks like statewide, it seems like the hospitalization data and whatnot seems to at least kind of be not like, you know, spiraling wildly, wildly out of control, like uh, maybe 450, 500, you know, like, uh, give or take, you know, staying level like that, I guess, does that, does that, I guess, maybe create, I guess, a bit more, uh, I guess, hope or optimism, okay, things can start to turn around, you know, things, the number of higher vaccinations is, is going to help, you know, keep those higher numbers at bay, do you see that, you know, as a good sign, or? So here's the challenge with that, right now we are packed, right, we are packed with patients, and the Omicron infections are still in, continuing to spread. And yes, there are likely less hospitalizations with Omicron, but there's still quite a few. And once you get so many thousands of people ill at once, even if there's less than, than Delta, there's still a lot of people who hospitalized and there's very little room left in our hospitals. So, um, so even though it's obviously gonna cause some le likely less hospitalizations uh, per case, there's so many cases, it will continue to overwhelm us. 
And, and again, the, the way we prevent that and what we're asking from the community is get your booster and get vaccinated. It's, it's the only thing that we can do to, to really get us out of this. Matt, I would just add, I think that Dr. Mitchell's point that you know we're, we've been running 130, 150% capacity at UNM, which means that any additional patients, right? Any additional patients in our hospital or in the other hospitals is a huge, huge um, challenge to try to accommodate those patients, right? So even small numbers make a big difference. And um, I just have got to reiterate the point, which is if you've not been vaccinated, it's not too late. Get vaccinated against COVID, get vaccinated against influenza if you have not. Um, if you've not been boosted, please get your booster. I think the other thing that has changed is that because Omicron is so contagious, the cloth masks that were previously not too bad are really not very effective at this. Dr. Mitchell has mentioned N95 masks a couple of times, and, and I think that that is a great takeaway for all of the listeners is to say you really need to up the game on your mask. You need to have a highly effective mask, um, and you should wear that. Um, you know, in a tight fitting fashion that is uh, in addition to the vaccine um, and in addition to avoiding high risk environments, wearing that highly effective mask is going to be the sort of third, third thing that you can do to really keep yourself safe and out of the hospital. Thanks, gentlemen. Thanks, Matt. We have time for two more questions. So uh, Jared Ebernick from KUNM is next and then Susan Montoya Bryan from the AP. Go ahead, Jared. Hi, thank you. Uh, you can hear me, I assume. Yes. All right. Jared Ebenreck with KUNM. Thank you for your time today. Um, my question is, there's been coverage about how many healthcare workers are likely to be impacted by this highly transmissible version of Corona. How is that impacting PREZ and, UNA and UNMH in terms of staffing and capacity? Um, how many healthcare workers are being taken out right now by the surge in cases? and surge in, uh, in transmission. Thank you for your time. I, I don't have exact numbers for you, um, but I can tell you that um, this is one of the biggest challenges that we're facing right now is even though our, in, our workforce is vaccinated, um, that people are still uh, contracting COVID with mild symptoms in most cases, but they're missing work because they, they have to quarantine during that time that they're infectious. And that the biggest challenge that we're having from a workforce standpoint is just as those folks are, are on their quarantine before they come back, how do you fill those shifts? Um, and how do you make sure that you're able to um, have all of those, you know, EVS employees, nurses, technicians, um, clerks, physicians, APPs at work? And it's a huge challenge. Um, we're grateful that no one, that most people are not getting seriously ill because they're vaccinated, but those workforce issues are going to continue to be a big challenge for us. The approach that we're taking um, is having um, really redundant sick calls so that we have people on backup that can come in and cover, um, making sure that we can support those people that are out sick. Um, and this is really when we talk about what, what are the challenges and why is this work so hard? It's because um, everybody is backing each other up and covering sick call and coming in and working extra and making sure that the team is there. So this is one of the, the things when you, when you think about how this is hard on the healthcare workforce, it really is um, making sure that we have a team there, even if you're tired, even if you've worked a lot is coming in and doing that extra shift. And I'm incredibly proud of the teams at UNM and at Presbyterian and at our partners around the state um, for the work that, that their teams are doing and for the ability for people to cover each other and um, come in and make sure that the patients can get taken care of. That's why we're here. Um, it's an incredibly um, big challenge right now. Um, and, I, and I think the teams are really um, doing an amazing job and um, making sure that we can continue to provide that important service. Thanks, Jared. And we will go ahead and finish up with Susan Montoya, Brian of the AP. Go ahead, Susan. Thanks again for taking our calls. And this is basically a follow-up on Jared's question. I know a major healthcare provider in Arizona just recently decided to allow employees who have either um, very mild symptoms or are asymptomatic to come back to work. Is that something that you guys might consider if we continue to go down this road to ease those policies as far as quarantine? 
That is, you know, that is one tool. When you think about crisis standards of care, um, that is another tool that we have. Um, currently, we are not doing that. We're following the, uh, the CDC guidelines and obviously individuals that have had COVID, um, they must stay at home for five days um, after uh, diagnosis. They must not have a fever. Um, they must be asymptomatic or had mild symptoms of resolving, and then they can return, of course, with N95s and, and all the usual precautions. We have not gone down to having patients that have not met those criteria, um, but that's, that's a lever that a hospital system may have to pull uh, if, the, if the volumes overwhelm and you don't have staff to take care of people. Quick reminder, our line opinion panel this go-round this week was Michael Bird. He is a former past president of the American Public Health Association, Tom Garrity, a line regular and head of the Garrity Group PR, and Martha Burke, friend of the show, Martha Burke, author and political psychologist. Great group of folks. They also dive into the ongoing drama around COVID, whether it be schools uh, and trying to continue in uh, a non-remote learning situation to the strain on the hospitals we talked about, which we know is still largely uh, the burden comes from unvaccinated, still about 80% of hospitalizations for COVID right now are among the unvaccinated. That came from that press release we just played you as well. So again, ongoing, uh, lots to talk about, lots to deal with when it comes to COVID in New Mexico. So let's hop right back to Gene Grant and the line. Now, COVID-19 remains a major concern around the state and country. We told you last week the Department of Health says the new variant is three times more transmissible than Delta. It has a lower hospitalization rate, but with so many more people expected to catch it in such a short period of time, hospitals are feeling the impact. New Mexico's two largest health systems held a joint briefing earlier this week to lay out exactly how they expect the Omicron surge to impact their staff in the next couple of weeks. Those healthcare leaders are warning this surge will impact emergency room wait times, and they are asking people with minor to moderate issues to call a primary care doctor first before heading to the ER. Now, how disheartening, Michael, is it to hear these warnings yet again? Well, I mean, I think anybody who's aware of the impact of viruses knows that this is, this is a long-term, yep. this, this is not a quick, there's no quick fix. And, and any opportunity we, we might have had to have minimized the impact of COVID, uh, that, 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 uh, that time passed a number of years back when we might have had the opportunity had we really emphasized uh, vaccinations early on and, yeah. and made a real effort to, to ensure that that did take place. But given where we're at right now, I think that, um, you know, th this, is, this, we're, this, is a, this is a long-term Viruses are out there. We've altered the environment in so many ways that's impacting um, the, 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 the increase of viruses and the potential transmission from uh, across the globe. Mm -hmm. So that, that's what's brought us to this point. And of course, you know, in New Mexico, we had the highest um, uh, November uh, number of deaths were 4,246 cases. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that, that was um, that, that, that in November in 20, 2020, that was the high of 3,675. So we've had that many deaths. And I think the other thing that really needs to be emphasized is that um, there are two populations that, that are really being impacted with, in terms of that's reflected in this death rate. And that is seniors, and people with co-occurring conditions, mm -hmm. and and you know, and or underlying conditions, and I and I would say that we need to you know we need to reframe and watch our language sometimes because, to me, what underlying conditions means to me is people who are poor, and people who uh, are ethnic ethnic come from ethnic communities. That is an underlying condition, and poverty is an underlying condition. It's more than just you know, the condition itself, being diabetic, being overweight, well, what, what, what really underlies those create, what, what are the situations and circumstances that oftentimes lead people to those conditions? Mm -hmm. And we need to focus on that. 
the environment, what's going on, what sort of infrastructure do we have to promote health versus illness. Right, that's a good point there. Hey Tom, you know, if you're looking at daily case count updates, I know you are, we all are, you've noticed a significant spike in recent weeks following the holidays. You know, some of the 24-hour periods reporting nearly 3,000 new cases. You know, super high numbers, Michael mentioned it as well, but here is my question. Is it time to reframe what they actually mean in terms of impact? Because that's sort of a question right now. Hmm. It's an interesting question. You know, when I, uh, you know, on the holidays in general, I think it's it's good for people to connect. I think you just need to be able to connect safely right. and in a responsible manner. Um, you know, when I look at the numbers and yeah, the numbers are just, you know, really, uh, you know, quite phenomenal. But, you know, 92% of the fatalities that Michael had referenced are the unvaccinated. Mm -hmm. uh, unvaccinated also make up 60% of the overall uh, medical cases uh, and 83% of hospitalizations. So, you know, I think the larger questions that are going to start to surface as all the hospitals start to grapple, actually not, they're in the midst of it right now, mm -hmm. is, you know, should there... Uh, should care be altered based on vaccination status? Um, you know, as an approach to providing care to patients, uh, should we start seeing triage start to come up where, uh, you know, care should be triaged to, you know, help those who have the greatest chance of survival? I hope mm -hmm. the answer to all those questions is no, let's just keep treating, which I know all the doctors and medical personnel want to do. Um, but, you know, if the emergency rooms keep getting pounded like they're getting pounded right now, mm -hmm. uh, you know, those are very difficult questions which uh, could be asked here very soon. Mm -hmm. You know, interestingly, uh, the Presbyterian Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Jason Mitchell, uh, Tom, made that very point, said, guys, it's about vaccinations at this point. It's really not about much else after that. Martha, here's a question for you. I know you're in Santa Fe, but the city of Albuquerque got some backlash after it announced here it was considering a vaccine mandate for all public employees. And Mayor Keller has since clarified a little bit, saying those workers will either need to be vaccinated or test for the virus each week. And so critics of a requirement say it could be it could force workers to leave already understaffed city services. Is that a legit concern? Well, they're going to have to leave if they get COVID. Point, and point taken. Say that uh, I agree with Michael about there are a, there is a variety of underlying conditions mm. right mm. now. The biggest underlying condition contributing to this pandemic is non-vaccination. And we need to just say that and say it out loud. Right. And Barry Ramos did say it to the media last week, Dr. Ramos, very uh, well respected. He just put it right where it belongs on the backs of the unvaccinated. They are counting on the rest of us who are vaccinated to keep them safe. Mm -hmm. Is that when you talk about triage, Maybe that ought to go into the mix. I'm pretty much a hardliner on this. I have a friend whose husband not only is an anti-vaxxer, he says COVID does not exist. Mm. And this is an educated person, uh, professional that ought to know better. But here's a, here's a proposition. Mm -hmm. See what you think of this. Maybe one way to cut down on the number, and Tom is right, 90% of the hospitalizations and deaths close to 90 are now the unvaccinated. Maybe the insurance companies should start saying, if you're not vaccinated, we're not covered if you have to go to the hospital. Ah. That can change some behavior right quick. Right, interesting points there. Uh, Michael, I mean, this thing, this variant is so fast spreading, people are testing more often. It's getting harder for individuals to find tests. Have you had to navigate this or anybody you know of? CVS and Walgreens have appointments booked more than a week out. And if you go to the uh, Department of Health website for New Mexico, boy, it, it is awfully tough to find it. Are you hearing the same thing? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing from some of my friends nationally. Yeah. Uh, like, for example, in D.C., a friend who, who contracted COVID and he's, he can't and he can't get to a test. It's, it, I mean, it's not possible. Yeah, that's right. And I think there are a number of places across the country that that are are are, are facing the same challenge. The, the tests are not as readily available as they should be, as they need to be. Mm -hmm. um, but I want to pick up on just one quick point, uh, backing up a little bit, and that is that you know when you be, when our systems, when our when our healthcare systems, our hospitals, and our providers are pushed to the end, to the brink, and and those systems potentially 
could collapse, then I think we need to really think about going back to Martha's point um, about, you know, tri and, and Tom's point about triaging, because, you know, if, if, we if this continues to impact the healthcare system, there may be a need to say, to, to follow up on the points that they made, that, that we cannot risk the, the whole healthcare system collapsing because there, in fact, there are folks who are unwilling to get vaccinated because they're not just putting themselves at risk, they're putting everyone at risk mm -hmm. and, and, they're, and, they're put, and they're threatening the collapse of our healthcare system potentially. Mm -hmm. Hey Tom, real quick, uh, Santa Fe Public Schools announced plans to go back temporarily to um, all virtual learning in hopes of getting a grasp on all this. Should other school systems be following suit at this point? Uh, well, you know, I think based on what the vaccination, uh, you know, status is, but also what the infection rates are, I think, you know, schools need to address on a case by case basis. I think the New Mexico Public Education Department uh, is recognizing that there's a, a significant issue at play on the on the amount of time you need to uh, quarantine. And so the mm -hmm. PED has moved it from 10 days to five days mm -hmm. for students and staff. And I think that's a step in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Good point there. That's a little bit of nuance. I'm glad we got in there. Thank you all for your thoughts on that issue. I know we all wish we could avoid it, but the reality is here to stay and we need to do what we can to ease the burden on our healthcare workers, among others. And let's stick with the line here for a minute. Uh, we talked in our most recent on-air show also with them about a push by some lawmakers to study whether or not New Mexico would be better off with public-run utilities or the private utilities. Uh, and this all comes out of the recent denial by the Public Regulation Committee, or Commission, excuse me, PRC, to a new merger request from PNM, the Public Service Company of New Mexico, and Avangrid, which is a subsidiary of the Spanish company Iberdrola. Uh, which we also now know that those two entities will appeal that uh, decision to not allow for that merger to go through. And we also know that starting next year, that regulatory agency, the PRC, will be made up of appointed members, not elected members. And so, again, lots of talk, discussion about what will give folks in New Mexico utility customers the best rates and the best uh, accountability around their utility service. And so this idea is floating around of giving a study of public utilities, state-run utilities. And so I want to dive right back in here with the line panel and see what they had to say about that idea. And we'd love to hear from you as well. You can drop us a line, let us know your thoughts on social media, whether that's Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, we're in all those places. would love to hear from you. But here now, once again, Gene Grant and the line. A, uh, 16 state lawmakers are calling for a study to analyze the pros and cons of a publicly owned electric power utility. These legislators don't just want information on a state-run utility, but also smaller ones that could be run by other municipalities. Let's bring in our panelists on this one. First off, is this something, Martha, we should even consider as a state? Even if you think it's a bad idea, is there any harm in conducting a study like this? No, there's no harm at all. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, the study could be very beneficial, Gene. Mm -hmm. I was struck by, uh, I know none of you are old enough to remember Vietnam, but I am. <laughs> <laughs> now the argument is over whether the PRC is the right uh, entity to conduct such a yes. study. The arguing over the shape of the table with the Vietnam. That's right. Uh, that's, on, I appreciate uh, the analogy. I hope people, folks did pick up on that because that's pretty brilliant. Uh, but I do think, uh, yeah, we need a study. I've been mm -hmm. doing some looking at the statistics. The American Public Power Association tells me uh, that homes that are owned public utilities, and by the way, two of our investor-owned utilities, meaning for-profit, uh, or have that word public in their name, which is a bit disingenuous. Mm -hmm. But clearly, uh, publicly owned uh, utility, the ratepayers are paying on average 12% less for their power than wow. for investor owned, and that's a pretty big chunk. Mm -hmm. They're also the 
publicly, the truly publicly owned are out, uh, the, have power outages half as often as the investor owned. Wow. So that's something we really should consider. There are over 2000 entities in the United States that have public utilities. There's only one state where the whole state is public and that is Nebraska. And they have a considerably lower population than New Mexico, but it's still something to look at. Mm -hmm. Now, whether the PRC is the correct entity, I don't know, but just my little tiny bit of research that I've done tells me there is going to have to be some money put forward for a study regardless of who does it. That's a good point. That's a good point. Michael, the uh, folks have been very clear on that at the PRC. They don't have the time, the money, the staff, or anything to do this. It's a great idea, but you don't have to come up. No, that's not us. That's right. Exactly right. Um, interesting, though, I'm curious, how does New Mexico's unique geography, Michael, play into this? Would smaller munis be better off in control given how different the needs of each of our communities are physically? Oh, you're muted there, bud. It was referenced that um, that Picarice Pueblo, which is one of the pueblos in, in, an, in a rural northern New Mexico mm -hmm. area of the state, uh, went solar. And and I just think that, you know, that's 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 really, you know, I applaud them and congratulate them for doing that because um, oftentimes smaller communities are ignored and um and and it's a real challenge and and they're actually selling power back mm -hmm. to um to to the to the the, the the power group in 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 taos and so i i just think anything that that enhances a, a community be it a tribal community be it uh, any community the, the more control over they have of their resources and their ability to support and sustain their own people and that and the community mm -hmm. is is a plus it, it's not a disadvantage. It really is an advantage just in the same way that people can source their own food. Mm -hmm. And, and there's a, there's a, there's a, a the long hi cultural history here in New Mexico, Pueblo people and Hispanic people growing their own food, their own crops, and they're healthier, they're better for you, they're less expensive. And, 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 and there's really, it restores that connection to, to the land and the community. And, and there's cultural value in, in that. So anything that enhances, I think, a, a community's control over their own, their own uh, future and, and, the, and, the re and, and whatever they need to sustain that community, I'm, I think it's just the, the best possible uh, way to go. Mm -hmm. You know, Tom, when you think about it, there's a lot of forces coming to bear here. It's interesting as I read about it. When you think about it, the advancement of renewables, there's questions about corporate control, electricity rate hikes are a big deal for people, as Martha pointed out a second ago that a lot of places are actually following suit. There's, you know, a number of states I'm seeing here, Mass, New Jersey, New York, they're either studied or intending to study this very thing. There's something in the air here, isn't there? People want a little bit more control, it seems to me. Well, I think people want a little bit more accountability, I think ah. is what the message is that I'm hearing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and accountability is really kind of the, the reason why I'm not necessarily in favor of having a publicly or a government uh, run electric utility. Mm -hmm. uh, exhibit A in uh, my case, so to speak, would be the Albuquerque Bernalillo County Water Utility Authority. Uh -huh. It's a government run authority that is a utility rather, that has absolutely no direct accountability to the public that it serves. Um, you know, the utility authority, for example, is made up, its governing board is made up of city councilors, county commissioners, and somebody who's appointed by the mayor. Mm -hmm. Those people keep rotating off. If I have an issue with my city councilor, state representative, or mayor, um, I can go ahead and cast a vote against that particular person or for somebody else. But if I have issues with how the water utility authority is going, there is no direct means for me to you know, really leverage my voice, my vote. Mm -hmm. And that I think is a, is a huge lesson for the legislators who are going to go into this uh, and support potentially um, a, P, a PRC review of electric utilities. So, right. you know, that's, that's the biggest red flag that I have right now mm -hmm. is just that lack of accountability. That's an interesting mm -hmm. point there. Go ahead, Martha. Yeah, uh, Tom, you're right. Of course, there has to be accountability. The PRC does already regulate co-ops, which are a right. little bit different from 
flatly publicly owned. I should say electric you know, electric co-ops uh, fully. I should say. Thank you, Gene. And there's no reason we couldn't have PRC or another entity uh, to regulate the publicly owned utilities if we had them. It, it doesn't have to be elected officials or people that rotate off and on and so ah. forth. It can be an entity. With, but, but just Mar like the PRC is now. Martha, it, it, does it make a difference to you that starting in very short order, the PRC is going to be an appointed body, not an elected body? Does that make a difference? Yeah, I, I think that uh, it, we need to be very careful mm -hmm. uh, whether it's appointed, elect I think appointed can be very political without question. Mm -hmm. uh, elected be equal to so we need to really take a look at how the entities that we know about nationally, which have already been mentioned, are functioning and what kind of oversight they have. Mm -hmm. that yeah, there's, and, and there's the whole Lou Wallace perspective, right? That anything, <laughs> uh, you know, that basically, uh, and I'm not going to go through that whole quote, but, you know, basically... <laughs> the what works in other states is not necessarily going to work here mm -hmm. and i think that the water utility authority is a great example i hope that this discussion fixes that accountability structure and provides a good framework for other utilities mm -hmm. uh, whether they be electric gas or water interesting well, point there we have to look at comparability tom what states are the huge california has quite a number of public utilities california could swallow new mexico 30 times uh, so we have to find some comparables and see mm -hmm. what is going on there, I think, would be part of the study that PRC says they don't have the money to do anyway. That's right. <laughs> hey, thanks again to our line panel, as always. This week, really appreciate you guys. Now, be sure to let us know what you think about any of the topics the line covered on our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram pages. That's all the time we have for this episode of New Mexico in Focus. Again, be sure to tune in on social media tomorrow in the afternoon for the Governor's State of the State Address. That'll be coming to you live on YouTube, Facebook, as well as the NMPBS website. Or you can wait uh, for a day turnaround, watch it on air on Channel 5.1 or on the PBS app. The speech, as well as some analysis we will also be doing with uh, some special guests uh, with Gene Grant discussing the speech as it happens. We'll also let you know that on the website you'll be able to find a copy, written copy of the speech along with context and annotations from working journalists across the state. It's going to be a busy week and a short week. We hope you'll be there with us for all of it, and we hope you have a terrific week. Until next time, I'm Kevin McDonald, your host here on the podcast. And uh, we uh, appreciate you as always tuning in. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy.